0: Welcome everyone. This is Higher Discourse. This is the show where we talk about the infinite positive possibilities of our shared future and what's holding us back. In this episode, I want to share with you a story. Let's talk about it. just work. And the bottom line is some people are okay going to work and some people, well, some people would rather die. This story is about a boy who lived in a village. Now this boy's village was a busy place, bustling with life and community. And in this village, everyone had a purpose, a crucial role they provided for the village. There were hunters for meats and skins, there were carpenters for woodworking, leather workers, weavers, healers, and even a village elder for leadership. They had almost everything a healthy community would need to survive, and the village was settled somewhat tolerably near a river that ran through a valley just downhill. In fact, the only reasons to venture out of this village were for food and skins from nearby game, herbs for the medicines, and, of course, water from the river. That's where this boy comes into the story. The boy's father was the village's water fetcher. By the village's custom, the children were free to play until they came of age, at which time they'd be expected to take over their parents' duties for the village. Once the boy was the appropriate age, he'd have to replace his father as the water fetcher. Unfortunately for the boy, he had one day left before he came of age and his life would have to change. And he dreaded the thought. It was not what he wanted. The boy really just wanted to continue playing as he always had. He didn't want to become a water fetcher. Just like the carpenters and the healers and the hunters each spent their days fulfilling their duties within the village, the boy's father spent his days bringing water to the village the entire day. To perform his grueling task, the boy's father hiked up and down the steep hillside path, carrying two buckets of water back and forth from the river to the village and back again. The boy's father repeated this from sunrise to sunset every single day, an incredibly difficult and demanding job. This was why the boy wasn't excited to come of age and take over his father's job. This was the reason the boy dreaded the coming day. See, the boy was used to spending his time tinkering. Tinkering was how he played. He most enjoyed crafting and creating things. He would often visit the other villagers while they worked, the carpenters and the leather workers and weavers, and he would rummage through their refuse, finding scraps and leftovers, combining things he'd find in new and interesting ways, basically crafting unique toys for himself and the other village children. He even liked showing the other children how to craft unique toys like he did. See, tinkering and creating was his true passion. It was where he found true joy. The boy felt so happy with his life as a child in the village that he didn't want to lose all of his fun and play. He spent his last day before coming of age by trying to enjoy tinkering as he always did. But the whole day, the whole time he played, he couldn't quite shake the worry, the worry of what was coming. That night... The boy lay in bed, thinking about the coming day, still worried and fretting over what was to be his fate at sunrise. He kept thinking about how difficult the work was for his father. He thought about the effects that a lifetime of water fetching had on his father. The boy noticed that his father was very strong and wide of build, a positive thing to be sure but the boy also noticed that his father's feet were always blistered and calloused. His father's fingers were gnarled and difficult for him to move properly. And he remembered that his father also complained about pain in his knees that wouldn't quite go away. To say nothing of the fact that the boy's father worked so hard making multiple trips to fetch the water each day that he rarely had enough time or energy left to spend with him. The boy was sure that his father's lifetime of water fetching was to blame for all of these things. Seeing his father's situation frightened and worried the boy, because by the village's custom, this was his last night as a child. Tomorrow would be the day he had to become the village's water fetcher. And, well, he simply didn't want to. He didn't want to leave what he loved doing most, and he didn't want to hurt and ache like his father. Of course, the boy was happy at the idea that his father would finally get a chance to rest, but he also felt it was a tragedy that he would never be able to tinker and play again. As he lay in bed, he couldn't imagine a worse fate than the one he was facing, but finally he fell asleep. The boy awoke the next day and was greeted at the center of the village square by his father and the village elder. In keeping with village tradition, the boy's father simply set down the two buckets, bowed to his son, and walked away. This small act was part of a simple ceremony to symbolize the passing of responsibilities from father to son. Simple though it was, the boy felt a profound weight settle on his shoulders as he watched his father walk away. And that is when the elder spoke to the boy. You have now come of age, young one. Now you will become a proper member of this village. You will leave behind your leisure and your whims, for you are now expected to become part of something greater. This is your calling, and you should be proud of it, for your work will make this village stronger. And with that, the boy grabbed the two buckets his father had left behind And he started down the hillside. The boy's first day of water fetching was brutal. His fingers ached terribly from carrying the full buckets up the hillside. His shoulders burned with a tension and an exhaustion he had never felt before. Even the sun overhead seemed hotter than normal, more punishing somehow. His entire body seemed to scream at him with various pains from head to toe and the boy realized that he had never experienced such torture in his life. He felt that he couldn't possibly bear it any longer. But as he looked up again to the sun, he noticed that it hadn't even been half a day's work, and he still had another half to go. He was forced to confront the awful truth that for all his struggles and pain, he was only halfway done and with only a single day's work. And then he was struck by an even more disturbing revelation that he didn't merely have to face the rest of his day like this. He had to face the rest of his life like this. The boy somehow found the will to continue his drudgery and finish his day of struggle. But after sundown, he limped to his bed, laid down and closed his eyes. He tried to find rest as he surveyed the many different pains and aches he could feel throughout his body. And though he was far too exhausted to stay awake for very long, he had one single overwhelming thought before he drifted to sleep. The boy knew there was no way he could live this way. The boy awoke the next morning feeling as though he hurt and ached more than he did before he slept. He struggled to sit up, But when he did, he looked down at his stiff, aching hands, and he could barely curl his fingers. As he stared at the redness and blisters all over his palms, all he could think of was how much he missed tinkering. He couldn't help but think that he had new hands now, new, painful, stiff, burning hands. He felt a deep sense of mourning and loss when he thought about never being able to tinker again with these new hands. Then he found himself feeling a spike of anger. He wanted his old hands back, hands that didn't hurt, hands that could craft and create like he really wanted. Suddenly, his anger became determination as it swelled within him, and he decided that he had to find a way to return to his tinkering, to return to what he loved. He wasn't ready to give it up as the elder said he should. And at that moment, the boy had an idea. He realized that first and foremost, he needed his old hands back. So before he started his trip down the hillside path, he first visited the carpenters. As he often did before coming of age, he sifted through their wooden scraps for what he might need for his project. And luckily, he found something that would work well for his idea. It was a long, sturdy, wooden pole about the length of his body. Next, he visited the weavers to search through their refuse for scraps of rope and string. The boy found everything he needed, and he used his aching, blistered hands to affix each of the two buckets to opposite ends of the pole. And he used the rope and string to secure the two buckets in their positions. It really hurt to use his hands, and he had to work slowly. But finally, he finished assembling his creation. He hefted it over his head to rest its weight across the back of his neck and shoulders. That's when the boy saw the village elder noticing him and what he had done with the pole. The elder only smiled at him and almost seemed to nod his head in approval. And with that, the boy started down the hillside to begin his day of water fetching. The boy had great success using the pole, and he noticed relief from the pain in his hands immediately. It was such a success that he started using the pole every day. And with each passing day, he healed more and more until he felt like he finally had his old hands back, hands that could tinker again. Now that the pain in his hands had faded, the boy realized his next problem. He needed more time. Like his father, the boy was fetching water from sunrise to sunset. So even though the boy figured out a way to stop his hands from hurting, he still found himself too exhausted to do much of anything except sleep and fetch water. Sleep and fetch water in an endless cycle of hard work and then exhaustion. What good was his ability to tinker if he couldn't find the time to tinker? No longer distracted by the pain in his hands, the boy had another idea. It was obvious what he needed to do next to overcome this problem. He decided to visit the carpenters and he asked them to teach him to make buckets. They agreed to teach him for a short time each night after sundown. And so, each night after sundown, the boy briefly met with the carpenters to learn from them what he could before they went home. Though each lesson with the carpenters had to be short, the boy always continued on into the night after they'd left. He was always exhausted because he sacrificed much-needed sleep in those late hours, but even while terribly depleted from his day's work, the boy found the strength to persevere, because deep down... He knew it would all be worth it once he learned to craft a proper bucket. Finally, after a few weary days and nights of working, learning, and practicing, the boy made two well-crafted buckets, as if he were raised a carpenter. Triumphantly, the boy affixed the two newly made buckets to the pole he had been using to join the other two that his father had passed down to him. He figured that with four buckets, twice the normal amount, he should be able to fetch the same amount of water in only half the time. But the boy had to wait for sunrise to head down the hillside and see if he was right. So excitedly, the boy hurried to sleep. Finally, morning arrived and the boy awoke with a grin. Without hesitation, the boy scooped up his pole with the four buckets and eagerly got started with the day's water fetching. The boy's four-bucket method with the pole was a complete success. Like he had predicted, he was able to bring a full day's worth of water back to the village in only half a day's time. Though he noticed that the trips up and down the hillside were more difficult and more exhausting, what was more important to him was that it also took half the trips than before. This allowed him the additional free time he had been wanting. While the boy did have to spend the first half of the day water fetching, he was free enough to spend the second half of the day playing and tinkering with his old toys, crafting new toys, and sharing them with the other kids in the village, just like he used to. The boy went to sleep happy that night, pleased with the thought that he'd be able to continue doing what he loved. The next morning when the boy awoke, He walked out of his hut to start his day and found the village elder waiting to speak to him. I know what you are doing, boy. You are trying to earn yourself more time to play. You are too ambitious for your own good. This new way will only bruise your shoulders and wear away at your knees, making you feel old before your time. There is wisdom in the simple way that your father and forefathers fetched water. Their way is truly the best way, and you must stop being so eager to play that you forget that simple truth. Remember, boy, play is for children, and one cannot persuade time to turn backwards. None can return to childhood once they have left it. I will allow you to make this mistake for a time, as it will only serve to teach you a lesson. As the elder walked away from him, the boy found himself pondering what the elder had said. The boy was indeed more exhausted from his more difficult labor, so he acknowledged the value in the elder's words. This new method was more painful and harder on his body. It gave him his hands back and left him with more free time, but it couldn't possibly last long without consequences he didn't want. The boy realized what that meant, that there was still more work to do. After a few more days water fetching, using the pole with the four buckets, he had another idea. He stopped using his extra free time to play and he instead started using it to learn he knew he needed to learn a few things to make his new idea work. He spoke to the leather workers about his new idea and asked them to teach him enough leatherworking to make it a reality. But he still needed more. So he returned to the carpenters, spoke to them about his new idea, and asked them to teach him enough to make it a reality. It took quite some time to learn and quite some time to craft, but finally... He completed his new creation. He borrowed the village mule and affixed his new creation to the mule's back. It was a thick leather harness capable of having multiple wooden poles fastened to it, with each pole capable of carrying multiple buckets. The boy knew he could simply borrow the mule's strength for a short time each day to carry even more buckets in even less time. This would allow him to complete his water fetching in only a fraction of the time. And with that, he excitedly packed up the mule and was about to begin his journey down the hillside. The elder noticed him and what he was about to do, so the elder spoke to him before his trip started. Beware, young one. You are giving your work to another. This is laziness. And it will not serve you in the long term. Only hard work is respected in this village. You are granted the fruits of this village because you contribute to us by fetching the water. You get meat and skins from the hunters because you fetch the water. You get treated and cured by the healers because you fetch the water. You have your own hut and wear clothes crafted by the weavers. Because you fetch the water. If you give your work to the mule, then is it not the mule who deserves these things? If you do not fetch the water for the village, then why should the village provide you anything? I will allow this for a time so that you have an opportunity to learn this lesson. But be warned, young one. If you fail in this lesson, You must be cast out of this village, exiled to the wilderness. Someone who does not provide for the village must not be provided for by the village. Walk this path carefully. Cautious of the elder's ominous warning, the boy began his and the mule's journey down the hillside. The boy found that his water-fetching day was indeed shorter and easier, thanks to his new creation and the mule's help. But the boy couldn't help but consider and ponder the elder's frightening words. He found himself running only a few trips water-fetching with the mule in those early morning hours. In fact, fewer trips than he could have ever imagined. The boy ended up with most of his day free again, almost like before he came of age. Of course, he tried to enjoy all of that free time by tinkering, but he kept mulling over the problem the elder had posed. He'd be exiled into the wilderness? What did the elder want him to learn? Night came, and the boy laid in bed trying to think of a way to both keep the free time he wanted and still heed the elder's warning. The boy saw the value in the elder's words and knew that it was not a permanent solution to shift his struggles and his pains onto the mule. The boy pondered and pondered the elder's words, the needs of the village, his own desires, and how in the world he could balance it all. And then an idea came to him, a big idea, maybe the biggest idea the boy had ever had. Finally, the boy was able to sleep because he knew that when the sun rose the next morning, he would have a lot of work to do. Using the additional free time that the mule allowed him, he knew he had more things to learn to make his idea reality. He asked the weavers to teach him how to craft more rope, and they did. He then revisited the carpenters and asked them to teach him how to make wheels, and they did. The boy knew his project would be the biggest he had ever done and that it would take a lot of time and materials. During his next trip down the hillside, the boy spent his time counting his own steps up and down the hillside to determine how much rope he was going to need. Then he used his time on a different trip with the mule to determine how many wheels he would need to craft for his project and where he would need to place them. Even with so much additional free time, it still took the boy several hours each day across several days to craft all the materials he needed for his new project. The boy found himself thanking the mule for its steadfast loyalty and endurance, and he knew he couldn't have had the free time and energy to craft this new creation without the mule's help. To further hasten the completion of his new project, the boy again started sacrificing some of his sleep. Sometimes waking up early before sunrise or going to sleep extra late to continue crafting all the rope and wheels that he needed. Once he had enough materials, he continued to use the mule's help to buy himself enough time to actually build his contraption. Finally, after many long days, it was complete. The boy was excited to show the elder what he had made because he had finally found a way to solve the problem the elder had posed. It was the largest project the boy had ever worked on, so extensive that it stretched all the way up and down the hillside. Cutting across the winding, water-fetching path, it was made of lots of winding rope and wheels, and had lots of buckets hanging down from multiple ropes. Now, the boy could sit at the top of the path and pull on a single rope to make the entire contraption work. As the boy pulls the main rope, the rope would turn the main wheel and the buckets would then travel along the rope all the way down the hillside, scooping up water and then traveling back up the hillside to the village along the lengths of rope. The boy didn't have a name for his new contraption, but he knew that this was the answer to the problem. This rope system would carry the empty buckets away, dunk them in the river, and then bring the water back to the village. This would give the boy the free time he sought without burdening the mule. The boy rushed to go find the elder to go show him his new creation and to show that he had learned the lesson about the mule. When the elder arrived at the top of the path, the boy excitedly demonstrated how by simply pulling the main rope and allowing it to spin the main wheel, he could quickly and easily bring water to the village. He began effortlessly pulling the main rope and all the buckets started moving along the hillside, bringing water directly to where the boy sat. Smiling widely, he looked to the elder for approval and the elder spoke. I see you have returned the labor back to your own hands and freed the mule. However, young one, this means that you have only learned half the lesson. You still seek time to play as if you were a child. You are still lazy. For now, I will allow you to use this rope to get water for the village. But until you learn this lesson... Until you rid yourself of this childish desire to play, you will now be required to pull this rope from sunrise to sunset. I will not allow you to escape this work and dishonor those who came before you. Your father fetched water from sunrise to sunset without complaint, as did your grandfather. This village needs much water, and we must get it from you sunrise to sunset as we did your father as we will your son as the elder walked away frustrated the boy couldn't help but feel that he had missed something something important why was the elder so angry the boy couldn't understand what was wrong with what he had been doing As he sat there holding the main rope, he kept trying to reconcile between the progress he had been making, fulfilling the village's need for water, and the elder's growing displeasure with him. The boy continued pulling the main rope and the contraption started turning again, bringing filled buckets up from the river as he continued to think. He dared not disobey the village elder, so he did as the elder commanded and pulled the rope from sunrise to sunset. Every day at sunrise, the boy sat, began to pull the rope, and then watched as his contraption brought full buckets of water to the village, faster than the village needed water. While the boy did feel proud that his creation worked so well, eventually each day, the boy found himself just pulling the rope for no reason, watching as full buckets came up the hillside, and then those same buckets went right back down the hillside, still full completely unused, completely wasted. After each day's sunset, he just found himself sweating and exhausted from pulling the rope, a rope system that was bringing the water so well that no one actually needed him to pull it most of the day. But he did it anyway, as the elder commanded. The boy felt punished, but he couldn't understand what he had done wrong. It didn't make any sense. Why was the village elder so angry? why was the elder making him do this what was the lesson the elder kept wanting him to learn why was the elder okay with him wasting so much water by pulling the rope regardless of the village's needs the boy hated to waste the extra water and he hated feeling like his own efforts were being wasted as well he paused for a moment focusing on the problem at hand The boy realized that while he may not know the answer to all of these questions, he knew that to solve this problem, he had to work with what he did know. So, as he continued to pull the main rope, he started to organize his thoughts. He knew that, one, the village needed water, so he had to find a way to keep bringing it. He knew that, two, the elder wanted the water being brought to the village from sunrise to sunset. And he dared not disobey the elder. And finally, three, he knew most of all, deep down in his heart, that he just wanted to return to his tinkering and he wanted to not feel so beaten and tired all the time. The boy found that once he simplified his objectives, they got a lot easier to figure out. He began to feel that maybe he could find an even better way to do things, to find a way to solve all the problems if he approached them wisely. Reinvigorated with a sense of determination, he began searching within himself for even better solutions, a way to make everyone happy. It didn't take long before the boy had another idea. Forced back into the sunrise-sunset routine that the elder had ordered, The boy was again short on time. He had to revert back to sacrificing sleep if he wanted to do anything besides water fetching. So the boy began work on his next project only in the latest hours of the night or the earliest hours of the morning when the village was still at rest. He searched the refuse of the carpenters, leather workers, and the weavers to acquire all the materials he would need. He gathered everything up and started assembling his idea into reality. He relied upon everything he had already learned from his years of tinkering and the other villagers that had been teaching him their craft. The boy was still a bit worried about the anger he saw in the elder last time, so he knew he probably shouldn't bother the elder or let the elder see what he was up to until his next project was completely finished and ready for demonstration. So, in secret, he quietly worked on his creations across many mornings and nights. The boy used what he had learned from making buckets to craft several large barrels capable of storing large amounts of water. For the time being, he chose to leave each finished barrel with the carpenters and their refuse in hopes that the elder wouldn't become suspicious. Once he had plenty of barrels made, the boy used the following night to begin work on the next part of his project. He took scraps of leather and cloth from the refuse of the weavers and leather workers, he stretched them out, and he adapted them to the center of a wheel so that the wheel would spin when the cloth and leather caught air. This was the most important component. He needed it to work if he ever wanted to tinker again. The boy wanted to test his component, but he simply didn't have the time that night. He knew he would just have to test it on the same night that he made his preparations. All of the pieces were completed, but he was going to need an entirely different night to put those pieces together. The boy had to spend one last day pulling the rope from sunrise to sunset. And although he was more tired than he had ever been in his life, he couldn't wipe the grin off of his face that whole day. Because he was so excited about his project, he knew this was the answer to everything. A way to make everyone happy. Sunset came and the village slowed as everyone started to wind down and go to their homes to sleep. The boy wanted to sleep too, but he knew he couldn't. Not now. With parts prepared and ready for assembly and testing, he knew he'd have to work all night and probably get no sleep if he wanted to have everything ready to show the elder by sunrise. Just as he had predicted, he finally finished his creation and looked up only to see the sun rising. It was now or never. Proud of himself, the boy slowly stood up from his completed project and tiredly began walking to go get the elder. Once the boy and the elder arrived back at the project site, just at the top of the hillside path, the boy lethargically began his demonstration. He showed the elder the special air-catching wheel he had adapted and affixed to the main wheel of his rope system. He explained to the elder how when the new wheel catches air, the air will spin the wheel. Then he showed the elder a small fire pit he had made beneath the air-catching wheel and how, once lit, the heat and smoke from the flame below it would turn the wheel, and that as the wheel spun, it would bring water to the village. The boy gathered the items he had prepared, and he started a small fire in the fire pit. And the whole rope contraption started moving on its own. As they both watched the thing moving the buckets, the boy went on to explain that this will allow the water to be brought to the village from sunrise to sunset, fulfilling the elders' command. And that at any time they wish, they could simply put the fire out to stop the ropes and the buckets from moving. The boy then drew the elder's attention to the large cluster of barrels he had already set up near the main rope and wheel system. During the night, the boy had retrieved each barrel from the carpenter's area and brought it over to his rope system to be filled with water. It took time, but the boy managed to fill each barrel before morning came. He was excited to share with the elder how much extra water he had collected in the barrels and the surplus that the barrels would provide for the village. Each barrel was full of enough water to last the village a long time and held far more water than the village would need at any given moment. As the boy showed the elder his new system, the new wheel and flame beneath it, as the boy pointed to the buckets moving on their own and the barrels holding the surplus of water, the boy chose to finish his demonstration by reiterating to the elder how perfectly this method would meet everyone's needs and how it would give everyone what they wanted. But when the boy finished, he noticed that he wasn't getting the response he'd been expecting from the elder. In fact, he wasn't getting any response at all. The elder said nothing and wore no expression on his face. The elder simply stood there staring at the boy's multiple barrels of water. Finally, after what seemed like an eternity... The elder slowly walked closer to one of the barrels and lifted its lid. Inside, it was filled to the brim with crystal clear water that perfectly reflected the sky on its surface. After a few more long moments of silence from the elder, the boy could hear his own heart beating loudly in his ears. The boy wanted this. He needed this. What would the elder say? Surely he could do no more to improve his system. Surely now, with this new way, everyone could be happy. The elder turned his expressionless face to look at the boy. Then the elder's face turned cold. Then angry. And then furious. Suddenly the elder started pushing the barrels over. All the water began to pour out and soak into the ground beneath the boy's feet. The elder took each emptied barrel and tossed it aside, forming a pile of them. The boy watched as a torrent of water poured out of each barrel, one by one, discarded. He saw hours and hours of his own work flooding into the ground and disappearing before his eyes. Not only hours of his own work, but weeks of water for the village. Then the elder shouted at him. This has to stop! I have shown you patience, boy. I have tried to be kind. But this ends here. You have wasted enough time with this foolishness. Playing is for children. If you want to be part of this village, you have to fetch the water. Not a mule fetching the water. You. Not ropes. Not barrels. You. If I don't see you traveling up and down this hill, earning your keep as your father did, you will be exiled from this village forever. I won't let the hunters feed you, or the weavers clothe you. I won't let the healers heal you, do you understand? I will cast you into the wilderness to starve and die alone. The elder grabbed something from his robes, borrowed a small bit of fire from the boy's fire pit. Then the elder walked over and set the large cluster of empty barrels on fire. He then walked over to the ropes and wheels leading all the way down the hillside and set them ablaze as well. The boy watched as the flames grew along the ropes, tracing and trailing down the hillside, destroying his entire complex creation the elder even went to grab the special harness the boy had used for the mule and he threw that into the blaze as well the elder only spared two small buckets from the flames the same two buckets that the boy's father had always used the elder approached the boy and spoke again hear me clear boy there is only one way you are allowed to bring water to this village Only one way you will deserve to be here, and that is by the sweat of your brow. Life in this village isn't for the weak or the lazy. We must all earn our place here, just like your father before you and his father before him. Forget your place again, even one more time, and you will regret it. Now go The boy was in tears. He understood now. He finally realized the crushing truth, finally realized the lesson. The elder had been trying to teach him this whole time, that he wasn't a child anymore, the lesson was that he was just a water fetcher now and that he would never again do what he loved. And worst of all, the boy realized it would be like this forever. And there was nothing he could do to change it. It was an immutable truth, as unmovable as a mountain. And suddenly the boy knew he had only been a mouse trying to move that mountain. He had been a fool, just like the elder had said. The boy's heart was broken, his soul was crushed, and all his hard work was being soaked up by the soil at his feet. And just at that moment, In his heart, he gave up. With his head held low, he walked past the elder, mud squishing between his toes. It was time to fetch water by the sweat of his brow, like the elder said. The boy walked up to his father's two buckets, lifted them with his hands, and he started his way down the hillside path. Of, I know I don't look it, but I'm beginning to feel it in my heart. I feel thin, sort of stretched like butter scraped over too much bread. So I want to talk about three different things with this story. The first of those things being the village's progression, right? Like as a whole village, I imagine it a lot like leveling up in a video game. You know, when you start out weak, you have a certain amount of progress in that village. No one uh, has any ability or technology to gain that water or get that water to the village. Besides the people going to fetch that water and bring it back, someone has to go fetch the water. And then later on, the village progresses to where not so much time is needed for that same job to get done. And eventually the village progressed to a state, thanks to this boy's innovations and efforts, the village progressed to a state where no one had to do that job. No one had to go fetch that water for the village to have not only water, but more water than it needed, readily available. So the village in a way was leveling up, okay? And the question becomes, At what point in the village's progression does it become wrong to ask someone or force someone to do a specific job? You know, of course, at some point in the village's history, along the village's sort of timeline, at some point, of course, it makes sense to do a certain job a certain way when that's the only way available. And so the first thing I wanna talk about here is Is there a point that it becomes wrong to work? Is there a point in the village's progression that it becomes wrong or immoral or or unjust to work? You see, what's wrong here is that there's there's a timeline in this village's progression. It's more of a nuanced question. When does it become wrong to work? It's not to imply that it's always been wrong to work if the village had no other way to get this water, right? But when does it become wrong? When, at what point in the village's progression does it become wrong? Because in my mind, it may not start out wrong, but it can become wrong. At some point, the village no longer needs this thing to be done this specific way by a person doing it manually. And so to then continue doing it that way, when other options are available, that's when the moral question comes in that something is wrong with that work. When does it become immoral and abusive and even violent to force this manual drudgery upon someone who would rather be doing something else with their time? And my personal line, my personal opinion, where I draw the line is it becomes wrong once it no longer has to be done that specific way, when there is a new way available that could free the individual or individuals doing that task. And we still choose for whatever reason, as a village, for whatever reason, the elder decides, we still choose to force the work and the manual drudgery on someone who would rather not be doing it. That's when it becomes wrong. That's when it becomes abusive. That's when it becomes a type of violence against that human being. You know, I think the world we live in today, the society we live in today, I think there's so much weight that we add culturally, so much weight that we put on this concept of work that we don't really look at our entire society our village and look at the the state of our progression and ask ourselves should we still be doing this should we still be doing what we're doing what is the level of progression that we are at as a as an entire society as a world that should have eliminated some of this drudgery that should have eliminated some of the joylessness and the soul-sucking pain of working some of these traditional jobs. Personally, I think that we are at a level of progression that most of our jobs should not exist as they do now, right? Because arguably... (laughs) We have solutions to a lot of the things that we're doing that could make them more efficient, that could make it where less time has to be spent doing it, to make it where fewer people are needed, if, if any people at all are needed to do these jobs. There's so many jobs in so many places that we just flat out don't need to be doing anymore, that we've developed the ability and the technology to just have those jobs done and thus take care of the entire village. I think we have gotten into the point where a great deal of what most people busy themselves doing to make a paycheck, to keep a job, I think we have as a village, as a people, straight into that era where much of it is now immoral to force people to do in order to survive. Much of it has now become immoral and unjust and wrong to force people to do in order to survive and be able to reap the rewards of the village. See, just like the boy in this story, we're told that if we don't contribute, if we don't work, we shouldn't be allowed the spoils of the village. We shouldn't be allowed the to to reap and harvest what this village has to offer. We should be essentially exiled or essentially a symbolic soft exile where we're just not allowed to gain anything that the village has to offer, that we're not allowed to utilize anything that the village has to offer. We can't have the village's healers heal us. We can't have the village's food. We can't have the village's shelter. We can't partake in the spoils of the village, the riches of the village because we aren't contributing or working in the traditional sense of the word. And so there is a, a, an ultimatum there. There's a, there's a, there's a huge, huge requirement that says we have to busy ourselves. We have to busy ourselves in one of these jobs of misery and drudgery in order to make that paycheck and therefore earn our ability to partake in the spoils of the village. village we live in, our society, I think that if we reached a level where elevators could be automated and we still had people who we forced to be elevator operators. And they hated it. They didn't want to do it. They didn't want to do it. They wanted to go somewhere else. They wanted to be somewhere else. They wanted to create other things. They wanted to go learn in, in, in school. They wanted to be anything else. But we, we told them no. You have to still operate elevators manually. That is how you contribute to our society. If we told them that and, and forced them into it in order to, and told them that's the only way they're allowed to get a paycheck. Is that not a kind of violence? Is that not a kind of abuse coming from the system down onto the individual? I think it's worth questioning at what point in the villages progression in societal progression, does it become wrong and abusive? The way we're forcing people to work certain jobs and for those certain jobs to exist in the first place. I think it's worth the question. The second thing I wanted to talk about with this story is who gets to define work, who gets to define contribution in this story, who's in charge of that definition. And I think it's very clearly the elder, the elder's definition of what work is of what contribution to the village is. It's what's determining the boy's value to the village. The elder is wielding the power of defining value, of steering the village in a specific direction, of saying, this is the way we'll go. We'll go this direction in the future and not that direction. The elder's position as leader is giving him the power to define not only the value of the boy, but the value of his work, the value of his contribution, and what those things even mean. And after that, he gets to define, because of that, he gets to define where the village goes. See, because seen through another lens, the boy was working the entire time when he was not running that water. Seen through a different lens by different definitions, the boy was always contributing to the village because technically the boy was working even before he was running water. He was working when he was a child. He was working when he was tinkering and engineering and crafting the toys. He was working when he was learning and discovering new things. He was working when he was providing some toys for the other children to play with in the village. This boy grew up and was working to advance the village as he created and tinkered and crafted better ways for the village to get its water. This boy was contributing to the advancement level of the village. He was working to better and strengthen the village all the time seen through a different lens. This boy was only working his entire life. And that was just doing the thing that he wanted to do, just doing the thing that he loved the tinkering and the crafting. This kid was an engineer essentially, but none of that got counted or valued as contribution or work because the elder defined what work was in this story. And I think we have to ask ourselves a question similar to this in our world, our story, our village. Who is defining what work is? Who is defining what that word means? Who gets to define and value contribution in this society, in our world, in our village? It's not the folks at the bottom. It's not the folks who are running the water. See, I think we have this master-slave relationship in society still. We haven't really gotten rid of it. And it's not the folks in the slave position, in the subservient position, in the disadvantaged position that get to define what work is and get to define what contribution is, right? If you can't be employed to do something, then it's not counted as contribution. It's not counted as work. And I think it's a serious injustice to take what a person wants to do with their time to take what a person likes to do with their time and to consider it laziness, to consider it, not contribution, not work just because it's not going and being quote unquote productive for some drudgery or some cause running water somewhere to earn a paycheck. I think if we look around at the system we've created for ourselves in the world that we live in, the village we all live in, (laughs) there's lots of little village elders all over the place, sort of dictating and defining the value of what we're doing in this world, because the play is the work. It is work to play. It is work to have a hobby. It is work to learn. It is work to teach. Whatever it is that you do because you want to do it, it is a contribution to the world. (laughs) And it blows my mind the way we act when it comes to what's officially, air quotes, officially allowed to be considered work. What's officially allowed to be considered contribution or productive or successful. These are the things that we aren't defining here at the bottom in this master slave relationship we've constructed in our society. It's the master position that gets to decide what these words mean. All of it is work. All of it is contribution. All of it strengthens and betters the village. The problem is the elder said otherwise, and the elder had the power to define. The elder held the power to say, your definitions don't count, mine do. And this village doesn't get to go wherever it chooses to go naturally. It goes where I tell it to go or nowhere at all. This was the real power that the the elder held here in this village. And I think we need to ask ourselves, Who gets to define the definitions of the words that we are holding ourselves to when we're supposed to be or expected to be successful, when we're supposed to be or expected to be productive, when we're told it's wrong to be lazy? Well, what's lazy when we're told that we must work? Well, what's work when we're told that we are not as valuable as human beings if we don't contribute? Well, what's contribution and what's value? Who defines that? in this relationship we share, in this village we live in? I think that's a question worth asking too. And thirdly, I think the last thing I want to talk about on this, about this story, is there an inherent violence in any withholding of progress, right? Is there violence in the withholding? One of the integral parts of this story is that in order to coerce and force this kid into doing what the elder wanted him to do. One of the ways the elder did that was that he insisted that the boy would not be able to reap the rewards of the village without doing what the elder said, without obedience. He wouldn't be able to get the food from the hunters and the gatherers. He wouldn't be able to get clothing from the weavers. The elder insisted he would not be allowed shelter, right? The the elder insisted that the boy wouldn't be allowed healers whenever he became sick. Despite that the village had these things available, the boy was told that he would not be able to partake of those things or utilize those things if he didn't fall in line and do as the elder said, so that the elder's vision of the village and the elder's vision and idea of what work is were properly served. And I think that it's worth the discussion, worth the question, is there a violence inherent in the withholding of progress? See, in this story about the boy and his village, I think automation is the main example used to illustrate the progress of the village. But it could really be anything, arguably. You could look at any kind of progress that is a positive progress, right? I'm not talking about, you know, making a a 16 bullet magazine into a 20 bullet magazine. I'm not talking about the progress of turning a, a, a small bomb into a nuclear bomb. I'm talking about positive progress, the ability to heal more people, feed more people, house more people, right? I'm talking about positive progress. This automation in this village, in this story of the boy in this village is the example used here, but let's take medical progress as, a, as, a, as an example. If there were a village where literally the cure for a disease was sitting on the shelf next to someone with that disease, and that society told that individual that they are not allowed to have that cure until they submit themselves to servitude in some way, until they perform some action in some way, until they show their worth or value in some way. Let's say that person didn't or couldn't obey such a command, considering that they have a disease, (laughs) considering that they're ill. If that society still decided to let that person die rather than to treat them, if that treatment, the cure is sitting on a shelf was to go bad and spoil, you know, and, and, and be useless to anyone. Is that not a kind of violence? Right. If, if there were a, a parent who had a fridge full of food and was letting their child go hungry, is that not a kind of abuse? Here's this thing that's available. It's available in an abundance. And you need only give it. You need only provide it to those who need it within your household. And as a parent, you just simply choose not to do it. Right? So let's say your stipulation is that your kid doesn't eat until they bring home straight A's. Well, what if they bring home all A's and one B and you simply don't feed them this abundance of food in the refrigerator? Well, what happens then when maybe that child suffers from malnutrition or worse, passes away. Is that not a kind of abuse? Is that not a kind of violence? No, you didn't punch the kid, right? You don't have to always draw blood for it to be violence. You don't always have to strike someone for it to be violence or abuse. And I think that the societies that we've created for ourselves, the structure of our societies that we've created for ourselves are very violent inherently, in that we have the things available. We've made the progress, but we have all of these little village elders, all these little stipulations, policies, rules, and cultural boundaries that tell us who does and who does not deserve the progress of the village, the, the progress our village has made. We have all these little village elders embedded in our system, embedded in our rules, embedded in our culture, embedded in our laws, that determine who and who, who does not deserve, who has and has not earned their right to live. And if they have not earned their right to live by obeying the elder and the way the elder wants this village run, well then they're allowed to simply be homeless. They're allowed to simply be foodless. They're allowed to simply die of illness. That's a curable illness that we have the solutions and the cures for. Is there an inherent built-in violence in the withholding of that progress by any mechanism? See, in this story about a boy in his village, the elder was one mechanism. The elder represents a single mechanism withholding that progress and determining who gets it and who doesn't, who deserves it and who doesn't, and who guides and directs the, the, the future of what progress will be, can be, and is allowed to be. But in our society, we have millions of these elders Embedded in our laws and our rules and our structures within our society, our cultures and everything else, even our religions. We have millions of these little elders embedded in the code of our systems software that determine these great air quotes, great reasons that we could have a bounty going to waste while there are those who needed dying without it. Dying without homes, dying without food, dying without healing. And we have this culture that determines this to be the correct and right way to do it. We have economic systems and laws that determine this to be the correct and right way to do it. We have religions that tell us this is the correct and right way to do it. If we pay attention, I think we'll see lots of these village elders embedded everywhere we look in our system. In each and every one of them, there's their own definition, their own little excuse to let some people die while we waste what they needed to live. Is that violence? Because to me, it is. It's a hidden violence. It's not a bloody violence. It's not an apparent violence. But see, if we go back to that analogy with the parent living with the children and they have a fridge full of food and the children simply aren't allowed to have any of it unless they make perfect straight A's, we would clearly see that that's a bad parent. We would clearly see that that's abuse. We would clearly determine that that's violence. But societally, we step back and we apparently can't tell the inherent built-in hidden violence of withholding progress, right? If there wasn't enough to go around, then it kind of makes sense. I'm not saying I agree with it, but it could arguably make sense, right? If you've got 10 apples and a hundred people, it kind of makes a sort of twisted sense that there would have to be some determination of who gets those apples and who doesn't. We've got to set up a system. We've got to make rules. We've got to figure this thing out so we can see who earns it, deserves it. Maybe one society sets it up where there's contest by battle, right? Maybe there's another society that sets it up where there's contest by financial prowess. Maybe another society sets it up where there's some other contest to earn and deserve one of those apples. But we're not in a situation with, you know, limited apples and an abundance of people. We're in a we're in a situation with like 10 people and a billion apples. And for some reason, we're still following certain rules despite the progression of that apple orchard. We're still following certain rules that say, well, these, you know, four out of 10 people can't have apples. They have to starve and die while these other people can have unlimited apples, regardless of the fact that most of their apples are spoiling and rotting and, and being buried in the ground to avoid the stench rather than to just give everybody the apples. Again, I don't see it as an absolute right or wrong at all times. I see it as a spectrum, as a timeline of growth and progress. And in my opinion, it becomes wrong eventually, when the village makes a certain amount of progress to a certain level. And once it's at that progress, new amounts of withholding, new types of restriction become wrong. They become newly wrong. Where they may not have been wrong 100 years ago, they are wrong now because of our level of progress. And that's the question I'd like to pose. At what point Does traditional work become wrong? Secondly, who is defining the value of work and contribution? And thirdly, at what point does it go beyond being wrong and beyond just work? At what point does it become violence to withhold progress from those who need it? from those who would live with it or die without it. At what point do we consider that violence simply to withhold it? And I don't care what mechanism it is withholding it. I don't care if it's a religious mechanism, a law mechanism, a legal mechanism. I don't care if it's a fucking cultural mechanism. I don't care what the mechanism is. I don't care what current skin the mechanism is wearing. If it's telling me that there are some who don't deserve that progress, I'm not buying it. If it's telling me that there's some who haven't earned, their value has not been set and quantified, then I'm not buying it. I think there's something inherently violent about what we're doing in withholding progress from ourselves and each other. And I know that it's probably a mistake to listen to that village elder tell me what work is and what it isn't tell me what contribution is and what it isn't and i know that much of what we do now is wrong so before i go i want to go ahead and and share a few final thoughts about this story i want to make it clear again that you know i know i already said it but i want to make it explicitly clear That when I'm talking about this village elder, the way that translates in our actual lives, in our actual society, is not a flesh and blood human being who is actually the one-to-one equivalent of this elder. I'm not talking about any kind of leadership or governmental, you know, entity. I'm not talking about any specific you know, person elected to any kind of office or dictator. I am not referring to a specific living individual person. The elder in this story represents just a singular mechanism. Any mechanism that is standing between that positive progress and the people who need it. And that's why again, I want to be very clear that this is something that shows up in multiple different places across our society, across our culture, peppered throughout our rules, policies, cultural beliefs, laws. This is something we find repeating itself. These, this elder is something repeating itself in multiple different places. What are the walls between? the positive progress that we make as a society and it getting to the people who need it most, it getting to all of the people. That wall is the village elder and we have lots of those walls in our society. And I think if we look for them, if we pay attention, there are lots of little things we've got in our society that tell us lots of little mechanisms like that elder that stand between the progress we make as a village and getting that progress, the benefits of that progress to the people. And the hard part is sometimes noticing that wall, noticing that mechanism, noticing that barrier between progress and the people who need it. You know, I think it's a lot like we're all born into this world. And at that moment, it's like we're all given a coloring book and we're taught how to color within the lines. You know, we're shown the lines in the coloring book, we're given the proper crayons and the proper color, but we never really step back far enough to see the, the full and complete image that those lines make. Or even more than that, we fail to step back even further and start turning the pages in that coloring book to see what story those images are telling. You know, what what story, what narrative were we born into and started participating in and started coloring within the lines of without even understanding that story, without understanding not just the story, but even the image we're currently zoomed in, coloring within the lines of. And if we step back far enough and we see that image, we step back further and turn those pages and we see the story as a whole, the narrative as a whole, We all know something's wrong with our human story. We all know it. We all feel it. But those guidelines and those boundaries built into the coloring book kind of make it where we can only look at our own lines and our own colors and our own crayons. And we can only focus on our little part of the coloring book. See the elders. Have us drudging up and down that mountain, focusing only on our little bucket of water, struggling to survive our own personal trials, one blister at a time, one bill at a time, one problem with your car at a time, one job loss at a time, one medical concern at a time. We're so zoomed in, we can see we can feel that something's wrong. We we know it, but the 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 incentives and the and the and the pressures of the system we're in make it extremely difficult to step back and zoom out and understand what's wrong, understand why it's wrong and how it went wrong. And to top it all off, no matter how bad we feel about what we're currently doing and how the the world currently works, we're, we're told it's literally wrong to dream of, of and fantasize about better. We're told that it's literally wrong, that you're stupid, weak, and naive for daring to believe that it could be any other way than what it is right now. That there's any better way to bring water to the village. Freer ways. We have no problem believing that our phones can be better. We have no problem believing our televisions can be better in two and five years. But we're, we're discouraged from having certain types of dreams, certain types of belief in the future, certain types of change. We're discouraged from believing certain types of progress is possible. Even as we literally throw away and waste that progress and we refuse to or fail to. Give it to the people that need it. We, we play by the rules without questioning what, what story the rules are telling, what progress the rules are shaping. And I think that's relevant to talk about. And I think that one of the most influential things that controls what tomorrow becomes, what influences what tomorrow will be is influencing what people believe tomorrow can be that is the beginning of tomorrow's dna of tomorrow's birth and if we fail to believe or are convinced not to believe in a positive tomorrow then we will not birth one we will not create one we will not participate in one we will not build one or plant one see the boy in this village had his dreams limited and silenced by that elder. Because the elder, if you think about it, didn't just have to contend with the physical constructs the boy was creating. He didn't have to just contend with the actual output of the new progress the boy was inventing. The elder had to contend with the boy's mind. The elder had to fight the boy's heart. The elder didn't only have to fight the iteration of that progress. He had to fight the one bringing it. He had to fight the faith and belief and hopes and the dreams of the one bringing that progress. He had to control what the boy believed was possible. And I think the same thing is happening to us in our village, our world, our society we have our dreams suppressed and our actions suppressed. But I would say our dreams are suppressed even more fervently and more determinately than our actions are because our dreams are where we could figure this thing out. Our dreams are where we could crack the code. And I think that that's why, that's one of the major reasons why, in my opinion, That this system and the reinforcements of this system attack our dreams and our faith in the future first, our faith in each other first. And it stops us and prevents us from even picking up the tools we need to craft tomorrow. We don't even bother to pick those tools up because we don't even have the faith that they would mean anything that they would matter. We don't have the faith in each other that we matter. We don't have the faith in ourselves that we matter. I think this is one of the most potent parts of what that village elder did to this child. Yes, the village elder controlled progress. Yes, the village elder defined the definitions. Yes, the village elder beat this boy down until he submitted But I think the most potent thing that the elder did to this boy was he controlled and shaped the boy's belief in what he could do, in what was possible, in what was right and wrong, good and bad. The elder affected the boy's heart and mind. And that's what really did the final blow to control tomorrow in that village. That's the power of dreams. That's the power of our faith in tomorrow, our faith in each other, our faith in ourselves. And I think the first step in us making a better tomorrow, changing tomorrow to be better, the first step is us changing what we believe it can be, changing what we believe is possible, right? Banishing this negative idea and this nightmare that we have been convinced is the only way to go is the only way forward is the only thing right and true. It's the only thing possible. We've been told. And I think one of the first steps to fixing tomorrow is fixing our belief in it. All right, that's it for this episode. Um, Let me just say here, lastly, that. If you think about tomorrow like a seed, a seed that needs to be planted in soil, right? In order for that seed to grow into reality, right? In order for the seed of tomorrow to grow into today, that seed has to break ground within us. We are the soil. And as our seed of tomorrow grows into today, It's watered and nurtured by our hearts and minds. It's watered and nurtured by our hopes and dreams. And the elder tries very hard. The elders that we've created try very hard to remind us that there are worse ways to live, that things could be worse. But we have to remind ourselves and we have to remind each other as often as possible that there are better ways too. There are always better ways, no matter how much progress we make or have ever made or will ever make. No matter how much progress we make, there is always a better way. (laughs) Anyway, on that note, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, I hope this story has been of some value to you and I'll see you next time. you wish for me no one's ever asked me that before well in my case freedom you're a prisoner oh a genie that's terrible but oh to be free not to have to go what do you need what do you need what do you need to be my own master such a thing would be greater than all the magic and all the treasures in all the world But what am I talking about? Let's get real here, it's not gonna happen. Genie, wake up and smell the hummus. Why not? The only way I get out of this is if my master wishes me out. So, you can guess how often that's happened.